Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance from This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all of their forms. I am your host, Susan Fox. And I am your other host, and for this show, the engineer, (laughs) Gene Turnbow. And, and uh, tonight we are talking to Richard Foss, author, culinary historian, uh, author of the book Food in the Air and Space, The Surprising History of Food and Drink in the Skies. Welcome to the show, Richard. Why, thank you very much. Condolences on the equipment problems you're having, but, but I'll be happy to talk to you, Susan, because I think I've been talking with you over the years for a couple of decades now. Oh, Yeah. For those who don't know, everybody knows Susan probably on this uh, particular channel as a person of science fiction, but she is also very much someone who's interested in the culinary arts. I have been threatening to do a science fiction food show for years, and today I very nearly get my wish because you've, you lecture on the subject and you, you, you have written a book on the subject of food in the air and space from the first manned balloon to the International Space Station. Yes, it is a thing that happened in a somewhat odd way, which was uh, I was I've had a local column in a newspaper for years and someone sent me a question. Our paper distributes fairly near to Los Angeles and someone sent me a question about the history of food in flight. And I decided, well, there's got to be a book on that. I'll go find it so I can answer this question. And then I discovered No, no, there really wasn't. No one had ever written that particular book. And at about the point that I was ruminating on this subject, someone with a publisher contacted me and said, we think you might be the right person to write this book. Uh, And at the time, it was described as sort of a history of airline food. And I thought, well, that's going to be a page turner. Uh, So maybe I need to look into this. And I just came back to them, said, yeah, you know, I will write that, but it's going to start in 1783 because of the fact that the very first in-flight beverage was served on the very first flight of a hydrogen balloon, the first manned flight of a hydrogen balloon in the presence of Benjamin Franklin and the King of France. Uh, Because when they launched that balloon, as the balloon went up, uh, the people in, in the gondola of the balloon popped the cork on a bottle of champagne. So it's like, right, there's our very first in-flight beverage. And, you know, it's going to end, it's going to start in a balloon 
in the presence of Benjamin Franklin, and it's going to end in space because we're going to take it all the way through to the space station. And there's actually a certain amount of synergy in this about the technologies because it is a situation that is unique in human history. Uh, in every other situation, fire has been your friend. But as soon as you get up into, uh, well, a balloon full of hydrogen gas or the interior of an aircraft, you really don't want to fire there. And it forces both technological innovation, culinary innovation, and it also brings us to things having to do with the psychology of that most comforting thing, which is eating a good meal when somewhere inside each one of us, no matter how much we have flown, something in your body when you're flying is saying, I'm in a metal tube with a bunch of people in close proximity. Why am I not panicking? So it's about the comfort aspect of the meal, the technology of the meal, and it works out in various ways through economics and history and all other things over that long course. And it was really quite a fun book to, to write, and I hope it's a fun book to read. It is. Well, good. Well, I think the science fiction audience will probably glom onto the, uh, the steampunk aspect of real uh, airships with real meals and even a nice cup of tea. Um, delightful meals, although I was surprised to discover some things about the meals in airships as I was reading about them. Uh, a lot of the people who were flying they knew they were going to be really with the cream of the crop of the aristocrats because this was a spectacularly expensive thing to do to take an airship between Germany and New York or Germany and Brazil or various other places. So they brought their evening gowns and everything else and then they spent the entire time wrapped in furs and overcoats because of the fact that there was no heating system aboard Zeppelins. You basically went around at all times in heavy clothes because of the fact that the thin skin of the Zeppelin made it so that you couldn't get warm. So all of these women packed evening gowns and didn't get to take them out. And you were really, really grateful when they were offering hot drinks. Yeah, so, I bet. <laughs> and, and the fact that they had such spectacular meals, there were some meals that I read about in some of the early Zeppelins uh, there was a Zeppelin. There was a Zeppelin that made the only round-the-world Zeppelin flight with a bunch of journalists and titans of industry. And reading some of the meals aboard, I was just thinking, you know, I'd like to go to a restaurant that serves that now. It's it's old-fashioned, but it has this glamour and elegance, and it's just different. It's it's just a different world, a reflection of the world of the 1930s. So, uh, and then seeing that and seeing. After this, how everything takes a step backwards because the food aboard conventional fixed-winged aircraft was fairly poor uh, because of the fact that, especially in the early times, uh, they didn't have much variety and nobody noticed because of the fact that so few people flew and so rarely that people didn't even notice that the meal was the same every time. Um, the airlines... Uh, manuals for the servers, the stewards and stewardesses, uh, were explicit about pack the fried chicken here and the coffee here and everything else because it was assumed that all, if you flew all the way across the United States, you would be eating fried chicken on about 15 stops all the way across the United States. You'd be bloody tired of it by the time you got somewhere. 
I think so, my kid wouldn't be. He loves fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy fried chicken, but I think there are limits to anything. I suppose so. Um, I so how... Before I wrote this book, I also I am a published science fiction author. I've had a number of short stories in analog and some anthologies. And so the process of writing this and the process of writing about food in the air and space, uh, it does... You know, in someone who has a science fiction mindset, it triggers those things about how technology changes society and how society adapts technology. It's the same kind of thing that you're looking at. It really is, and it's a part of you know our cultural world that uh, is not not recognized enough in science fiction, but I think it's getting to be. Yeah, well, it's a recognition also. When I started looking at how food had been expressed in the first Asian airlines. For a long time, all of the airlines in the world served European-style food because of the fact that most of the people who were traveling were actually uh, colonialists. Even airlines in the middle of Africa, airlines in the middle of Asia, um, were serving mostly British and American-style food because... That's who could afford them. That's where the money was. And when Asian carriers started on their own and started trying to figure out how to create meals that would be palatable for people who were not familiar with their culture, but for nationalistic reason, reasons, when Air India became Air India, darn it, they were going to take the first curries into the sky. So, And the ways in which they did this and the way in which they tried to adapt cuisines uh, that aren't very easy to adapt. Uh, people from countries where you usually eat a stir fry, you are not going to be up there in an airplane with a wok, uh, just spraying no. oil all over the place and having flames leaping around. Not going to happen. So they had to do things to give people the image of their food, the style of their food, while having it not be completely what people were used to. So I go into the psychology, the physiology, all kinds of things. And that gets even more important in space. Uh, if you are entirely deprived of food for a long airline flight, you will arrive hungry and grouchy. But if you are deprived of food in space uh, for a couple of months, sorry, you're not coming back down except as a corpse. So when you have astronauts who or you have the greatest distance from the kitchen to the dining table <laughs> in human history. You have to think about things differently, and you have to give people who are overwhelmingly bored after they get up there, no matter how much you enjoy looking out the window, uh, your days have a sameness. Trying to give people some sense of excitement and just playing the community that people have when they're sharing a meal. You give people a sense of community and sharing a, a meal when the very first astronauts from places other than the Soviet Union and the United States went up. One of the things that the Soviets were the first to do this when the Soviets had a Vietnamese astronaut, they got some Vietnamese flavored space food to take up with them. They showed a level of the of the psychology, of an understanding of the psychology that they were showing that astronaut, they were recognizing their culture, they were giving them that gift. They sure did, and I really have to appreciate that that kind of awareness and, and of bringing their own. I mean, borscht in space it sounds crazy, but it was better than what the Americans were eating. Yes, and with <laughs> When the at the International Space Station, wow, that's where the food really got international. The Italian 
astronaut Paolo Nespori brought up with him a bunch of space food created by the Italian cultural, Culinary Cultural Center. And so they had not merely Italian food in space, but the best Italian space food that the best chefs in Italy could create because of the fact that the Italian government recognized that this would be good publicity for Italian food to have all these astronauts eating lasagna in space. So it's a part of manifesting our culture. It's a part of showing our pride in who we are. When you, when you have someone over to your home and you deliberately make food for them that you know they like, you are showing a great deal of courtesy to them, and that courtesy has gone to space. Well, may it always do so. Um, well, you, I found the part very interesting, the uh, Chinese taikonauts trying to come up with meals for them without rice, because you can't cook rice up there. It's, you just can't. It's, it's, yeah. boiling, rice requ- boiling rice requires... Uh, if you were to try to boil rice in space, the amount of rice that you could fit in a sandwich bag would probably have to be boiled in a hefty bag, and it still wouldn't come out. Uh, it wouldn't probably come out very well because rice needs to be boiled underwater, and you can't. Uh, you know, you would be building up a ridiculous amount of pressure to do that. Uh, the Italians invented a uh, espresso maker because apparently yes. Italian astronauts in space just cannot start the day without their espresso. Uh, and I have I have sympathy for that. But just making one little espresso requires uh, a, a extremely complex machine because you're needing to run a very small amount of steam through coffee grounds. The amount of boiling water you would need to run through rice would be an incredible hazard for the entire station. And this kind of thing, you know, this is one of the things that, as though the book has been out for a couple of years, I still follow Food in Space. I'm fascinated to see what's happening with the ways that they're trying to improve the ability to not merely cook food in space, but to grow food in space. And, I mean, there are some problems. The plants that we most like to eat... You know, think about a carrot. It's a vascular plant. It has sunlight at one end and dirt at the other end. And it takes gravity to keep you know, the, the dirt down, to keep those ends apart, to make it so that the water is only where you want it to be. Uh, because plants that have the part that should be photosynthetic, plants that have that underwater, they rot, they die. Um, and uh, they manage to grow lettuce in space which sounded like a great achievement, but the way that they did that was basically to take some seeds that had been encased in a block of soil and uh, trickle water into that soil while having artificial grow lamps. It's nothing like something you could do on an agricultural level. Mm -hmm. As much as I love science fiction, as much as I love the idea of growing food in space, as far as I can tell, it's going to involve artificial gravity. Whether you get that by spinning up, whether you get that by some other technique, it's going to involve artificial gravity. I was hoping for tomatoes, cherry tomatoes. You know, you don't have to slice those up. <laughs> <clears throat> well, you, uh, that that is a great idea, as a matter of fact. it would. Uh, but uh, you're more likely to be growing various types of algae, various types of... Mm, yummy. Uh, and... You can do a lot with flavoring those, but not much of the snap and crunch of a carrot or that biting through the skin of a tomato or I could go on, but I won't. 
There may be some astronauts listening to this, and I'd make them homesick. <laughs> Possibly. Um, we've got the Deep Space Food Challenge coming up. NASA and CSA, the Canadian Space Agency, have got a project and a special coming up on um, November 9th, I believe it is, with a bunch of chefs from mostly America. I'm just taking a quick look at my computer, um, proposing new dishes for, for the astronauts, and we'll see how that goes. Well, one of the things about the physiology of food in space is that that capsule, although it's more humid, the, the rather the space station, though it is more humidified than previous stations, it still is a very, very dry environment, and your sense of smell does not work that well in a very dry environment. So you're <laughs> liable to be a little bit off. I mean, you you have an impaired sense of taste and smell even in a normal airliner mm -hmm. and this is drier so how they're going to adjust for the human senses it is almost like the books of james white in which you had a chef who was cooking for aliens who had a different physiology and had to sort of imagine what was going on and in the case of james white he was able to invent uh, the thing that allowed you to download an alien's senses on a temporary basis so you could tell what would make them hungry. But uh, that's not something that our current uh, that's not something that our current crop of entrants in that contest are going to be able to do. No, no. And I'm not sure I'd want them to, to be honest. But um, yeah, well, the idea of spice in space is is difficult because you can't shake things on without gravity and the little grains of salt or slivers of of dried plant matter are going to get everywhere so everything has to be in a suspension doesn't it yeah it has to be in some kind of suspension and i mean think about that salt in suspension thinking about if there is an accident that sucks that into filters or into electronics so that you have sodium chloride you know you are you have something that is going to conduct electricity very nicely and will corrode things as well. Ooh, that, so no you, soy sauce in the sensors. Oh, man. No, please do not pour soy sauce into the sensors. <laughs> I haven't tried it, but I'm just sure it's bad. So, you know, as I looked into the past, into the... Uh, I, I wanted to see if, since science fiction often prides itself as a genre on uh, looking forward and being imaginative, I started looking into science fiction and seeing whether, uh, whether food was even addressed. And it was very, very early uh, in the work of Jules Verne because of the fact that in From the Earth to the Moon, uh, 1865, it has a group of Americans and a Frenchman who are on a flight to the moon and they have the Frenchman cook because you wouldn't want to let Americans do that kind of thing when you have a Frenchman around. Of course. If you read it, uh, it has a, a wonderful description of a fine meal. And they even get some things remarkably right. Uh, you know, in the ornate writing of the period, you have lines like, the breakfast began with three bowl bowls of excellent soup, thanks to the liquefaction in hot water of those precious cakes prepared from the best parts of the ruminants of the pampas, which is a way of saying a bouillon cube. All right. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> succeeded some beefsteaks compressed by a hydraulic press, as tender as succulent as if brought straight from the kitchen of an English eating house. Preserved vegetables succeeded the dish of meat, 
and was followed by cups of tea with bread and butter after the American fashion. And, of course, they have tea, and, of course, he had to bring along a fine burgundy. But, you know, the fact that he did think it through enough to think of, all right, yes, we're going to have the bouillon cubes and hot water, we're going to have the compressed meat. This is Jules Verne in 1865 uh, being imaginative about the type of food that space explorers would take along with him. But, he, he's, all, but he is French, so he had to think about it. Yes. Well, the thing about it that is odd is that from then on, um, it's a false start. Nobody, none of the American science fiction writers that I have been able to find through the golden age of science fiction uh, address food at all. Uh, Doc Smith uh, with the Lensman series, there seems to be an endless succession of stakes that show up from nobody knows where. Uh, by nobody knows what method and cooked by nobody. There is no named culinary staff, no cook. Things just appear. And it's just steaks and undescribed vegetables. And that is weird because E.E. Doc Smith in person was a chemical engineer who devoted his life to food. His, His dissertation was on the effect of bleaching on the baking qualities of wheat flour. If there was ever anybody you would figure would have thought about food, it's someone who started writing science fiction while concurrently having a career in food technology. Exactly and, so. I mean, he was famous in his field for making sugar stick to donuts. Yes, he did. Um, and then one of the first examples I found of a named cook in a science fiction, uh, in any science fiction story, is actually on Forbidden Planet. I was about is- to bring that up. <laughs> Earl Holloman. <laughs> Yeah, you have Jimmy the cook who never cooks anything through the entire film. He turns the robot into an illegal still, and he's a comic character. Yep. So, yeah. I already mentioned the the shining example of someone who thought about this is James White, uh, who in his series about a hospital for aliens floating in space really he obviously put a lot of thought into how this would work how would you deal with alien digestive systems what do you do when some of your patients look like food to the other patients what do you do when some of your doctors look like food to the other patients and really interesting and really goes into the psychology and the technology of food he he was an md but it wasn't until his his last book the Galactic Gourmet, that they really dove into the food aspect. And I thought it was brilliant, and I'd love to go. I, I, I wish he had had a chance to revisit. Well, actually, he did do it a number of times before, because throughout the series, after, after the first couple of stories, you have the dietician who, uh, at any one of the running gags of his book is that you have people who are sitting in the hospital's cafeteria and are struggling with their food because of the fact that they're eating food that is appropriate mm. to their body while they are have downloaded the personalities of aliens to whom that food would be poisonous or strange. So he actually does deal with it a number of times before you get to that wonderful book, The Galactic Gourmet, where it's all that all the time and it's fun and funny. So, you know, he, he was one of the examples of people who did... Um, but a lot of authors, they avoided describing food in space by just having all of their characters take pills instead of eat. And that is, you know, that's yeah. something that NASA and the Russians were both doing in the early part of the space program. But 
it's utterly unsatisfying. It doesn't fit any of our human needs for nutrition, for the camaraderie around the table, for anything else. One of the things also is if you go, if I remember going to the uh, House of Tomorrow at Disneyland, and uh, I'm not, I, I think they tore that down in the 1970s because it was already getting outmoded, but that goes back to the 1950s. And I remember I've gotten pictures of the uh, House of Tomorrow at Disneyland and looked at the kitchen. And it had some things that were sort of futuristic, but still terrible ideas. The futuristic aspect of it was that when you look at it, it has these clean kitchen, beautiful looking kitchen counters. And there are all of these things that can basically rise out of the counter. A blender can rise out of the counter. A toaster oven can rise out of the counter. An actual glass oven can roll out of the counter. And whoever it was that thought of that one should get zero points because a glass oven, really? Can you imagine what it would be like to be cleaning a glass oven? Yes. You know, the idea that was supposed to, you're supposed to be able to watch the food cook and the technology of oven cleaning, it would be dreadful. And that glass oven that rolls into the middle of your kitchen would be radiating heat in all directions of the kitchen. But one of the things about it that was not in that house of tomorrow at Disneyland there was almost no regular counter space that didn't have something popping out of it. It was a place to take pre-made meals and heat them, not a place with cutting boards, knives, none of that stuff. So, again, That's I mean, the, the Disney Imagineers were very imaginative about one single-minded thing, which is to have how to hide appliances, but not imaginative at all about, you know, hey, what do I need when I'm cutting at home? They, uh, none of them were people who cooked at home. They all had went home to their wives who did that. Now, if they yeah. consulted with the wives, that's, it yeah, would have looked very different. The people who were writing science, the people who were writing science fiction, were men who probably hadn't uh, they hadn't learned to cook themselves. I knew someone from that area. I knew knew someone uh, when I was in high school. He was uh, someone who was in his 40s, and I had to teach him how to fry an egg because of the fact that he came from Georgia in the South, and um, men didn't learn to cook. You married someone who knew how to cook, and until then, you ate all of your meals out. And he was someone who actually ate ev virtually every meal of his life out of the house. First time I went to this guy's house, there was nothing in the refrigerator but um, basically Coke so he could drink rum and Cokes. <laughs> um, and that was it. There, were, there was no food in the fridge. There never was uh, because didn't learn to cook. And there was this stubborn refusal. Cooking, you know, it's I, when I thought about why are there no kitchens in some of these early uh, science fiction novels to the people who had servants or who had wives who were at some level really acting as the servantry, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, it's that there were women, there was women's work and there was men's work, and that was women's work. And as a result, it was just unthought of. You know, I mentioned this to one person, and he said, you know, you don't have any descriptions of bathrooms in these things either. Um, these are bodily functions that are away from the high art of science fiction. It's, you know, they people wanted to dream about fancy engine rooms and weapons, but uh, the good things in life are ignored. You're right. You're absolutely right. I think the first time I can 
think of seeing a reference to a bathroom in in science fiction is the movie 2001 and the zero gravity facilities. Well, and that got the big laugh of the of the movie. This is the kind of thing that I, I really wish science fiction had been addressing. I I think science fiction now is you know almost anything is open, but that I put the turning point in around 1967 because the first Trader Joe's opened in 1967. <laughs> 1967 is when you start to have the rise of the movement that was called the foodie revolution, when all of a sudden it became hip for guys to have a favorite bakery and a favorite coffee house and that sort of thing. And And that's simultaneously with what they called the new wave in science fiction, um, often led by uh, Harlan Ellison and his uh, Dangerous Visions collection, but just a whole different mood was sweeping into the field. So it doesn't surprise me that those were around the same time. And Harlan Ellison and Norman Spinrad, I I would say Norman Spinrad in particular, Ellison and Spinrad were sensualists, and their writing is powerful and sensual, much more so than the, I find, more austere writing from a previous generation. Delaney also. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is an intensity of sensations that are described, and that naturally leaks over into various other things. And I, I think that the cultural revolution that was happening in America, where you had a, an awareness of different cultures and their food, you had an awareness of a lot of different aspects, even if it was sometimes done in a tokenistic way, it was out there. And people were thinking about it and people realized that you have to have all of the different elements of the human experience represented in fiction. And let me get a little bit discursive here by saying that throughout the history of writing, people have told us things about characters by the things they ate and drank. In the work of Jane Austen, Uh, There are times when someone would have, uh, for instance, there are scenes in Jane Austen where people, by the things that they offer people, make assumptions about their social class, about their status. The same thing in Dickens, because in class societies, the things that people eat and drink mark them as a member of a particular class. If someone in Jane Austen is drinking port, Uh, you will see that almost always the people who are drinking port are presented as a kind of the older fuddy-duddy type. Uh, You have lines like uh, Dr. Grant had his guest Henry as an excuse to drink port every day. And it's something showing him as an older, sedate, old-fashioned person because port was more of an old person's drink. The young hip folks are drinking punch. And in the same way, there's in Jane Austen, you have... Uh, a fat old man who smelled of port, who is regarded as an unsuitable dancing companion for a young lady. So the idea of, I have just marked someone here is of an older and out of touch generation. And there are other things that can be hard to catch. For instance, if you were to come over to my house now and I were to say, oh, I have something, knowing you, this is something you would love. I have a bottle of Remy Martine. And I'm making an assumption about you that you're going to appreciate a good brandy. 
And if on the other hand, I say, oh, knowing you, this is something you'll really appreciate. I have a 12 pack of Budweiser. <laughs> to somebody who doesn't know the culture, I have done the same thing in both cases. I have offered you a beverage. What's the deal? Well, offering you a fine champagne or a brandy as opposed to a 12 pack of Budweiser, um, I think I've made a value judgment about you. So in the work of Dickens, if there's someone who by preference drinks gin or rum, they are lower class, they are revealing a past as a sailor, there are other things that you can say about them by what they drink, and we tend to miss that, but it's something that happened in Shakespeare, it happens throughout the history of literature, it's a thing that authors do. And using food to indicate something about a character is something that should happen in science fiction. It, it happened, uh, again, I mentioned Norman Spinrad in the book Child of Fortune. There are some nicely delineated things where uh, the experience on uh, among people on different planets and their class is shown using the quality of their food. So there are so many things that can be told about food. Food is not just a thing in itself. It is a thing that reveals. Think about during uh, you know, the last conversation you had with members of your family that was a completely unscripted, free-flowing conversation. It was probably around a dinner table. Mm -hmm. so that's... That should be the set and setting in space, uh, in the air, anything. Uh, food is a social lubricant. So I'm interested in food and science fiction. I mean, I, my uh, academic interest, as it were, has been the food in the air and space, the real world. Uh, but you know, really interested in, uh, I strongly appreciate when someone handles this well. Oh, well, we sure do. But, it's, but science fiction isn't about the future. It's about holding up the mirror to, to the present and the past. So, so it'll be interesting to see how future science fiction writers uh, deal with this. And I guess we look forward to watching, watching that unfold. Yeah, well, we've, we have had, to a large degree, the breakdown of a class society. I mean, sometimes science fiction is just about, you know, some of the great science fiction is just about asking interesting questions and not necessarily providing a conclusive answer or providing multiple answers. And we're going to, for the, these pieces to be popular, they have to resonate with a contemporary audience. And the great pieces will resonate with an audience decades or centuries later. Uh, but once you start getting sensitized to the way some particular aspect works, uh, there was uh, the late lamented Bill Rotzler, a uh, science fiction writer who did in uh, his own work, he did have some things where he particularly was good at inventing alien art. Uh, he and Lloyd Biggle Jr. were two of the science fiction writers who did splendid things involving the future of art and creating visionary descriptions of art forms that didn't yet exist. And they both dipped their toes into the way that food was presented uh, or could be presented in space. So there are other people who started in, uh, you know, started along the way. And I find it interesting to go through some of the old stuff and read it. I confess that 
I am far from up to date with current science fiction. I've been working on some other projects and just haven't been doing much pleasure reading lately. Uh, but when I've asked people who are trying to read a lot of contemporary authors about you know, who's really a visionary about this kind of thing, I haven't been getting many names back. Lois McMaster Bujold has uh, a fair amount of food in her uh, her, her award-winning uh, Vorkosigan cycle, and uh, there's there's one one particular meal <laughs> in a, a civil campaign that uh, I'll just let people go go read and tell me I'm right. Ah, well, I will almost always allow people to tell me I'm right, but yes. uh, I see. It's, right. it's, it's kind of a 30th century but 19th century comedy of manners. Ah, all right. Well, I've, I've read some of her Vorkosigan series, mm -hmm. but uh, I have not read that one, so I'll have yeah. to look for that. Well, that's where he's getting together with his, his wife. His, hmm. his, but it is far from a settled matter whether she will be or, or won't be at that point. Yes. And there's a pivotal scene over a meal. And that's all I'm going to say. All right. <laughs> I will mention that I have a website at richardfoss.com. And there's an email tab there. And if any of your listeners would like to say, hey, I've got this great example that you have overlooked, I would be happy to hear from them. Because of the fact that I would like to compile, I don't know what I'll do with this information. I might write an article sometime or some scholarly study of food in science fiction. But it would be very interesting to know some pre any pre-1970 examples where food is used creatively, where you have someone who cooks for joy. Uh, that would be an interesting thing to see. I'm doing a reread of Dune before seeing the new movie, and there's a fair amount of food in there. And that was written, you know, I think he started working on that in 1957. So I will compile the citations for you. Well, the, the question is, is that those where the food is used in a way that it is not merely, uh, it's not merely background, where some awareness of uh food security, some creativity with spicing and preparation. You know, it's... If, well, certainly if, it's used as a conveyance of poison, which is of a great import in this kind of, in that particular universe. I mean, some people may say, well, you know, there's this, uh, there's this science fiction book from the 1950s where they've created a people, a creature called a gazorch, and they roast a gazorch for dinner. And it's like, no, you know, you could substitute any other kind of thing in there. It doesn't tell me anything about it. You know, we we're not expecting that you're going to find something where someone invented the idea of microwave cooking or so, convection cooking or anything like that. But just to find something where there's some sense of the excitement of cooking and of, you know, one of the really the most universally human things is the enjoyment of a good meal. And it's just so rare to find uh, where a good meal puts you into that meditative state or where you get excited about what's in something. I would say Lloyd Biggle Jr., A Monument, uh, was a magnificent book that had that particular aspect of it where you have a particular, uh, you have a culture that is dependent on, a, on one food source that they have gotten exquisite at cooking. And when we, humans discover that world and they want to basically take all of that food and export it, when the people on that planet can live on nothing else, 
it's a really, really good book. And that's that's not the front and center story. That is one of several stories being told at the same time in that book. And Lloyd Biggle Jr. was an, another one of those real sensualist science fiction writers at an early time. He was way ahead of his time. Interesting. We've been speaking with Richard Foss, author and culinary historian. Thank you very much for, for your time. And thank you. I look forward to hearing more of your shows. You have been listening to episode 227 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for Saturday, November 6th, 2021. No, you're not imagining things. We ran them out of order this time. 228 was last week. This week was 227. The next show will be episode 229. Our guest this evening has been writer and culinary historian Mr. Richard Foss, author of Food in the Air and Space, The Surprising History of Food and Drink in the Skies. The host this evening was Susan Fox. This episode will air again on November 7th, 2021 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, that's tomorrow afternoon, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and on our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-fi.radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. We are asking you to visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and pledge $5 a month to help keep the station on the air. That's patreon.com slash sci-fi radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2021 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on sci-fi.radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.